Hi, and welcome to the Delta Dialogue. In this podcast, we talk about open data, open medical data, and AI from above and beyond and explore its implications to our world. In this episode of the Delta Dialogue, we will discuss the metaverse, AI, and financial crime. I am your host, Emir Mustafa. I am joined today by my co-host and commentator, David Wood, and our guest speaker, Nigel morris Cudwell. Nigel is a lawyer turned financial crime risk and compliance specialist with a special interest in fighting money laundering and the funding of future crime, including terrorism. He is also a prolific writer and blogger. On the SMS uh, example you gave, Nigel, I'm not sure if you have the same thing in the UK or also in Malaysia, but here we have you pay for a service that once you receive a call, you know it's 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 a commercial or if it's spam, uh, but you have to pay for it to, to be able to see that on your phone once you get a call. And this is specifically for calls. And what, what it does is sometimes, I mean, I had the issue. I was like, I don't want to receive commercial calls. So I activated that and I paid for it. But then I stopped getting calls from my own bank or my own um, television provider. And yeah, and, and, you know, so, so I, the, the technology is there. It, it should be, I mean, when I talk with my telephone provider about this subject, they, they told me just to add exceptions. So this number is an exception that it can go through and, and this cannot, but yeah, it would always, it would, it would of course be nice to have that all automated. Uh, without me having to one by one put all the telephone numbers of of, of these uh, providers, but uh, but I've I've seen that that this happens and and there is something already and maybe in the future it might be better as David said that that it can uh, use an algorithm to provide you with a notification uh, if if you should be suspicious about the call. The UK the UK has very has had for a very long time uh, a do not call list. Um, where you register your number and the way that it's supposed to happen is that commercial concerns simply look up the number on that they intend to call on that database and if it's on the database they don't call it but if it's an existing customer then they're perfectly entitled to call it so the problem you've got with the system you're talking about is no one has bothered to make that database fully available on a, a, a in a way that it could be integrated with your telco, with your television provider, water company, and whatever, so they're able to say, "This is a customer, therefore we can contact it, contact this this number." Um, so, the, the, so the problems with the implementation, not with the not with the concept. One of the things I wanted to mention was regarding the deepfake uh, comment. Is uh, is is I remember uh, a few years ago that uh, that someone or a team of, of people, they, they try to uh, disguise themselves as the French minister of defense. And they called uh, some, some, some generals asking for money, I think. But do you think they would still be able to do something like Yeah, but that's got nothing to do with technology. That's just social engineering, you know, the, um, the old Kevin Mitnick stuff. Um, it's um, and, and simple fraud. Um, impersonating somebody on the telephone is is nothing to do with technology. Um, it's a telephone call. The technology might help somebody to do that. It might collect information about the person. It might figure out when the target person to be fooled is more vulnerable. 
and part of this may be human intelligence, part of it may be collecting data and pointing out, well, at this time of the day, the person is usually tired and they're more easily amenable to being manipulated, say. So I think you're right. There's a lot of human nasty ingenuity going into this manipulation, but it can be augmented, that desire, that capability. No, exactly. There's, 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 no, there's no question. It can definitely be augmented. Um, but the fundamental um, example that Amir rose, uh, uh, raised of somebody making a call saying, I'm Mr. X, please um, send me money. That's been around ever since the telephone. Um, so yes, it can be made by technology to be more effective. Um, but the basic principle remains that, um, that it's a telephone call. It's interesting that you and I clearly start from very different perspectives here. Um, and yet the, 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 the middle ground is so strong because the middle ground is where we're going to find 90% of the people that are going to fall victim. And so we both have something to contribute to try to protect those people. Um, it's, um, and I think that's, that's an incredibly valuable um, thing that, uh, that, that will be gained from this. Oh, more and more crime has moved online, just as before there were trains, there weren't train robberies. Before there were stagecoaches, there weren't highway robbers in quite the same way. The technology enables crime to some sense be safer and people are less likely to be physically hurt if they're taking part in online crime. So I don't know what the actual statistics are because the organized crime gangs don't have their accounts audited and published and vetted, but it seems like potentially by some counts there are trillions of dollars associated with various online cyber scams for the entirety. But the one of the one of the most profitable scams is just simple telephone scams. Um, there is a district called District 5 in, in um, Mumbai, which is full of office blocks, full of young people who are very happy to do, on, do, do telephone fraud. Um, they telephone people and say, I'm from Microsoft. Um, let me help you clean up your computer or other things. Um, and um, they get access to credit cards and bank account details very complicated and interviews with those people the people that are actually doing the crime show in most cases zero remorse not only no remorse they actually say in some cases we are doing this uh, i do this because i'm um recovering what was done to me by colonial powers or well they've got more money than me so i'm just taking their money and in one case well it's only money i'm not hurting anybody well, say that to the people that have committed suicide. Indeed. Especially when there's sextortion or people lose their life savings. They thought they were helping somebody and it turns out they weren't. People get incredibly depressed. But as you say, the people perpetrating the crimes, they feel some entitlement because they've part of a narrative that blames the historical crimes as they see it and attributes these to their present circumstance. Well, it's amusing when the people that are saying about the colonial times are actually targeting the USA, not the UK. So they're, so they're not terribly good on their history. I think that what worries me most about that, expanding the topic slightly, sorry, Amir, we're going a little way off, a little way adrift here, is that the very people that are doing that are also getting jobs in call centers where they're 
saying to saying to a customer of a bank, um, what's your security questions? They're writing the programming which is going into the fintechs. And who knows what back doors they're putting in? It's the same class of people. Well-educated, young, frustrated, in that case, Indians, but it could be just the same in Cambodia or, um, or China or wherever. And I'm very concerned that we are putting development of everything, including vast numbers of, of, of financial services compliance officers, are being mass-produced effectively in the same environment as the people that are saying, we are happy doing CV scams, we are happy um, padding our CVs, we're happy having, um, having fake um, degrees, and we're happy getting on a telephone and conning somebody out of their life savings just because they're on the other side of the world. I'm very troubled by the fact that we're seeing this same class of person in increasingly in positions where they have access to very sensitive information. To be clear, it's probably only a very small fraction of the people who are likely to do that. But given that there are so many people employed, then that small fraction multiplied by the large number means that there are significant risks. Have you been keeping an eye on the MGM casino troubles which are taking place as we speak now, which I understand MGM should be making lots of money with its casinos and so on, but they had somebody ring up one of their employees on the old fashioned phone call and somehow persuade him or her to divulge some password details which allowed the hack to proceed. It seems to be quite a, quite a drama, but it illustrates a lot of what we've been talking about. Indeed, and if you, I mentioned Kevin Mitnick earlier, it is exactly the social engineering that he was doing from a call box outside computer companies in the 1970s. The moment we were able to get access remotely to the computer systems within companies, then um, people were quite happy to try to get hold of passwords to gain access. Um, and it's been happening for a very long time. It's happened in banks and, and all kinds of industries. So MGM um, have a particular problem in that it's it's bigger than most. But um, are they back online yet? I, I, I stopped looking a couple of days ago. I haven't been following it. I just keep hearing people talking about it and say, humans are the weakest part. But I probably you would advise companies like that to change some of the architecture so that a single password doesn't unlock so many things. Is that uh, possible? I don't think that a single password unlocked a huge amount. I think it just unlocked something critical. But I mean, whether, should we allow passwords in the first place or should we insist on there being hard keys on dongles or some such? Well, that works if you've not dismantled or, or removed or blocked the USB ports. For example, <laughs> you, can't, you can't have dongles if you don't have any access points on your terminals. And many terminals no longer have any access points. Uh, so the, 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 the idea of saying that we can make any system foolproof, um, not that these people are fools, um, I think is quite impossible. Uh, I don't know that a password in the sense that we would use it, that we, that we know it, is ever likely to be secure unless it is incredibly complex. And they can be complex, but if they're complex, we can't remember them. You're suggesting in some ways that nothing is particularly new here. 
But I'm going to suggest that what is new is the pace of change, that there are more things coming all the time. And maybe if we really did practice good digital hygiene, we wouldn't fall foul. But there are more openings into our networks. There are changes in our networks. There are more updates to our networks. And every time they expose some vulnerabilities. Moreover, there is more companies, more people part of these critical networks. So it's not like you can just teach people, here are the rules of safe digital practice, and that's that. Things are changing on a regular basis. It's like every time I log into PayPal, it seems to be different than I remember it last time. Or every time I use even this Riverside, it misled me. I had to click something different recently than what I used to click. So things are changing all the time, which means we're going to have to apply even more critical thinking. And I know that may be a hard ask, but unless we're up to it, I think we're going to be having more cases of people feeling, well, suicidal in the worst case. Well, I think when, the, the reason we see a lot of the change that we see is not because change is necessary to improve the service or whatever, but because we don't have continuity. Um, we have two, two issues to bear in mind here. The first is fail fast or stroke agile. That should be banned. The idea is that it's great in a lab, love it in a lab, but in the real world, if we're constantly updating software, apps, I mean, some apps update every single day. Why? Only because they've not been programmed properly. If they were programmed properly and properly tested before the updates were, were released, then it would not be necessary to update them every uh, as often as we do. They're not new features, mostly. It's just fixing things that weren't done properly first time round. So regulators in financial institutions should be looking at fintechs, for example, and saying, if you are having to update your app so frequently, you've got to get a handle on your programming because it, there are going to be insecurities everywhere. And we've seen 600,000, was it, um, downloads of a, of a corrupted app from Google, from Google Play Store, because it hadn't been designed properly. Now, we're seeing so much of this, and... I've seen examples of people who say they are programmers who constantly advertise for work. They're often spending only a month in a job, then they're moving on again. So the, the, the product never has that continuity. It never has that security built into it. And the world at large thinks, well, it's okay. I'm being protected by all these updates. When in reality, it's just, as you said a few moments ago, introducing new vulnerabilities in many cases. I don't think there is that much that's new. The pace of change is phenomenal. But I don't think there's that much which is new in principle. It's still somebody's not protecting gateways. Somebody's not protecting the data for that gateway. How do we make that happen? It's the same problem we've had since people hacked into the Bank of New York and, and uh, Citibank, rather, in, um, in the 1980s. So if the political leaders of a country, Malaysia or otherwise, come to you and say, Nigel, we think we've got a problem here. What's your advice for us so that we minimize the amount of people who are distraught and lose money? Non-stop public campaigns. Non-stop public campaigns. I don't think we can say that there is a technical fix which is going to protect even the majority of people. Because 
somebody yesterday, a couple of days ago, said he had 27 different financial apps on his phone. There's no way that there can be a centralized control over that. So we can't protect everybody, no matter how much we try. All we can do is keep telling people, these risks exist. This is what you must do to protect yourself. Now, maybe we can put them on splash screens on the, on the beginning of, the, of every app. Um, but I mean, I, I don't trust apps at all. Um, and I'm very angered that um, I am required to use an app as a key to get into a bank account that I'm very happy accessing on the web when I have control through a VPN. Putting that, making me access that through my through my phone is increasing my risk, taking away my control and putting the risk in the hands of people that are that are changing their jobs every few days. I don't think that's acceptable. So I think governments need to have a strategy for protect for making sure that there are protections in place. But the only thing that is ever going to work is education and possibly making it difficult to access the thing, which is basically what two-factor authentication is supposed to do. But two-factor two authentication that says, authenticate your, your access to this app by the SMS we're sending to the same device, that's just moronic. So it's like when you and I were young, probably growing up in the UK, we had lots of adverts, look right, left and right again before you cross the road. Public education may not have been perfect, or a little bit later there was clunk trip, sorry, clunk click every trip again rubbing in the message that if you did this you would be less likely to fall foul of a crash a vehicle crash in this case rather than a software hack well these messages are fairly straightforward the messages in dealing with apps are more complicated so we have to work harder and maybe it needs to have a higher level of cabinet minister a higher level of backing from industry experts a combination of people who understand technology but also human nature and also the policy levers that can be pushed and pulled. Public service announcements in the middle of television programs would be a brilliant idea. I mean, they used to be late at night um, often, didn't they? But then there were also the ones you've just mentioned were um, in children's programs, for example, for the, the, the look left, look right one, um, which incidentally is an algorithm. Um, the, <laughs> if, if it's clear, then cross the road. <laughs> uh, so I think that those things have a great place there are public service announcements. Malaysia does have some, in fact. Um, but they tend to be... They're puerile. In that they're cartoons. And they're full of voices that are... Nah, 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 nah. Um, that's not what's needed. We need a message that says, this is what bad guys are doing. You must be careful. And it needs to be authoritative. It doesn't mean it can't be engaging but it shouldn't treat everybody like they're seven years old. So possibly in soap operas, possibly in popular media shows, some of the plot lines can show people like us being conned in terrible ways. There is a TV series produced in China um, by the television channel, I pronounce it Ichi, I-Q-I-Y-I. -I. Um, the series is called The Dragnet. And it's three stories, and the middle one is about exactly this kind of um, online fraud. And a businesswoman does kill herself. But it's, the examples include a, um, a university professor who is pestered for weeks by people 
and he starts off by saying, look, I know this is a fraud. Go away, leave me alone. But they keep wearing him down until eventually he does fall, fall prey. So we, the, these things do happen. It's in, I, they, they should be in soap operas. They should be in things. I mean, we, when we bear in mind that in the UK at the moment, there seems to be... Every, well, Disney Plus is another example. It seems to be impossible to watch a TV program without some kind of, of message about... Um, gender identity or the, um, or, or sexual practices um, it would be much more to the benefit of society at large if that was about the kind of crimes we're talking about can we get them to do that I don't know probably not with BBC I actually wanted to ask you've talked about the individual like what can individuals do in, in, in terms of uh, this kind of fraud but i wanted to ask like what about businesses i mean since what advice would you give to businesses and organizations actually looking to adopt technology for uh financial crime prevention especially in uh, light of the evolving threat landscape we talked about it's all about data um if you create a company sorry if, if you if you work for a company you're in the accounts department for a company and a new account is created, then verify that the account is the account of that customer. If necessary, tend to send a small test account or get your bank to do it. Now, it's fascinating. Again, you know, we look we look at Malaysia, a little country. If I want to send money to a to to a, a local bank account using my e wallet, I put in the number. And the bank, not my bank, the other bank, responds to confirm the name of the account. Now, that's pretty impressive. Because I'm then able to rely on that bank having undertaken the appropriate levels of, of know your customer to be satisfied that that is who I'm, de that I'm dealing with, the person I think I'm dealing with. That's brilliant. It's really good. Why don't we see that in banks all over the world? In Turkey, once you put the IBAN or IVAN number of account number of the person you're sending your money to, it will give the initials, two first initials of the first and last name. So that, you know, if it's uh, Emir Mustafa, you know, it's like EM and then MU and then with stars so that, you know, you know, okay, it's uh, it's, it's to this person. But in, in Holland, we don't have it. Well, I think, that, well, uh, there is a there is a move in Holland towards the combination of data relating to bank accounts. Um, it's, it's been discussed for a couple of years, um, but as it stands at the moment, it's not there. Um, but it, but there, is, there is a move towards that. Whether it goes so far as to allow this kind of integration that, that we've talked about remains to be seen. But it, the, the initial purpose is that it would allow banks for their own purposes to be able to look at data relating to an account and decide whether a transaction going to it is suspicious. So that that would be quite helpful, but there are massive privacy concerns, which um, because it, it's not just the account name and number, it actually is transaction data and historical transaction data that will be made available in the central repository. So do we trust anyone to have a giant central repository of all the financial information within a country? No. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a there is a, a, a serious problem with that, but when we bear in mind that 
fraud within companies is almost always, I mean, there, there's every year that there are a number of surveys that say that, that fraud within a fraud against a company is, is 80% of those include an insider. So we have the difficulty that we have is it goes beyond looking to see whether or not the money is going to the right place. It's got to do with the, with the integrity of the entire system. I acted in a case where an accounts manager went off on a long holiday, gave his key. This was in the days when internet banking required two physical keys to be put into a box on the desk. Gave his key to the, 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 his number two, and his number two um, wanted to make a, a legitimate transfer, called the um, finance director who held the other key and said, I need to do this urgently. And the guy said, oh, I'm going out. I'll send something. Uh, come, come and get my key and you can do it. You can do it yourself. Having learned that he could do that, humans learning what computers might learn in the future, having learned that he could do that, he then timed calls for when he knew the finance director would be going out. And he transferred enough money to buy lots and lots of cocaine and a BMW and a few other things um, just with two or three transactions. Because once he'd got those keys, having set up fake company accounts to send the money to, because he was, that was within, his, um, within his, his sphere of authority, he was then able to send money um, to what turned out to be his friends. And he got his friends involved in this quite sizable money laundering scheme. I mean, at the time it was sizable. Um, money laundering scheme by sending them money and saying, okay, now give me my money back. And this was 1995, 96, something like that. So the, the idea re remains very much, the, the concepts remain very much the same. There will always be somebody who's going to find a way around the system and will break it. So is that an argument for more internal monitoring, for more internal education? The finance director should never have had such a lackadaisical attitude towards allowing other people to have two keys in their hands at once. Well, I'll tell you, the bank didn't give them the money back. The bank said, it's your own damn fault. We, we give you a security system and you willingly broke it. Yeah. And I agree. It wasn't the bank's fault at all. The bank, they had designed a system and it was the people within one, one manipulated it and one didn't care enough. Are we never going to get over that? I don't think so. And there weren't sufficient internal audits or checking or something, which many companies may not like. They may not like an internal police force spying on people, figuring out what they may be doing in their lunch hour and so on. But perhaps such systems are going to be necessary. You can do that technologically now quite easily. Um, but are we going to see the idea that... that I mean, they're not really whistleblowers because that, that would imply that there was a, a, a fault in the corporate structure. Um, but are we going to see a person um, reporting his colleague because he's got a um, because he's, he's got a new car and he doesn't think he can, he can afford it? In that particular case, I did in fact ask that young man why uh, how he could afford the new car, and he gave me a plausible explanation. So I reported that I'd asked about it, um, that I was satisfied with his explanation. Um, and then it was a few weeks later that we found the hole in the accounts. So it's hard, frankly. We're going to need to apply a lot of intelligence, individual intelligence, collective intelligence, and maybe I can mention the terrible word, artificial intelligence. 
Well, if the computers are programmed to prevent it, then uh, to, 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 to make things happen only when certain conditions are met, then certain types of fraud may be prevented. If you have, if you tried, I don't, I don't know whether the system is in place because I hated it so much that I stopped using Singapore Airlines because of it. But at Terminal 3 in Heathrow, <clears throat> um, you, you, you had to register your bag before you got to the check-in. And it would reject it if it was if it was too heavy, or it would demand that you paid more money. So what they did was take away the discretion of the of the counter clerk. Now the counter clerk exercised discretion on a perfectly reasonable basis. Yes, you're two kilos overweight, but the person behind you is travelling with hand luggage, so we won't bother about it. But by designing the technology and to prevent that discretion. Yes, these things do often do do come down to the customer manipulating the, um, the the check-in desk, and I'm absolutely confident I will have done it hundreds of times over my over my career. Um, so it's possible to put these blocks in place, but then what happens? Somebody like me says, "I don't like the technology, so I just won't fly with that airline anymore." And that was five or six years ago, and I've never flown with Singapore Airlines since. How could artificial intelligence and machine learning or data analytics? I was going to ask for examples on how how they can be used to combat money laundering and financial crime in today's uh, digital landscape. And and what would you say are some of the most promising advancements in 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 this in this region to actually change the financial crime risk and compliance efforts? There's no need to change it. There's a need to improve it. We have been using in financial crime risk algorithms since the 1990s. Those algorithms have been on pieces of paper, they've been in spreadsheets. Um, all we're doing is saying, if this circumstance obtains, assign the, a value. And eventually you get to the end of your questions and you've got a value and you decide whether or not that value is within your risk appetite. The question is not whether the technology is doing anything new because it isn't. That's all it's doing. Data tables, data lookups. The question is, what are the who's setting the analysis? If that is set by the experts within the financial institution who know their financial institution, who know the type of customers they've got, then it can be quite reliable. But if it's set by some external programmer sitting in Munich who um, wants to uh, design cars to buy uh, to uh, to create false data so that they can say their diesel concern their diesel emissions are, are okay that's the risk we face the the algorithms must be defined by people that know the business and want to benefit the business the next question is the quality of the data which is obtained now there is a big problem that some David will know about with the uh, with politically exposed persons that is, is currently um, exercising the media in the UK. Um, a person who is a politician with particularly non-mainstream views, let's be polite, um, because he's a politician or was a politician, he he his bank decided to review his accounts 
because uh, because of that status. No, 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 no. The review was for that reason. I've seen the documents. the The original review was this man is a is a politically exposed person. Therefore, under our under our, our regime, we must review him on periodic reviews. So that was right. But then the problem was the review went away from his financial position and looked to see whether or not the bank might suffer reputational risk for offering him banking services. Or, in fact, when you see the whole documents, you can see the decision was, we just don't like this guy, so let's get rid of him. That kind of information is something which, if we try to put it into machines, we're never going to get sufficient clarity. There is no score for that, that a machine can, can assess for this guy is just a bit of a nitwit and we don't want him as a customer. So, yes, we can do it. We can look at we can look at, um, at, at jobs. So, for example, someone who is in salaried employment, has a mortgage, has a couple of kids in state schools. We know what he earns. We know what he spends. We know where he spends it. And yeah, OK, so maybe 10% of his money goes off in, gangling, in gambling or race or whatever. But that's within the margins of error. We're not going to fuss about that. We're going to regard him as a low-risk customer. But then there are other people who don't have a regular source of income, but who make sizable deposits periodically. So we would need to look at that person and see what type of business they're in. And if they're in a business where they sell Turkish carpets, not only could that carpet be very valuable, and it only needs to sell one every three months, but the other thing is, it might actually not be valuable at all. And it might just be a method of moving money to pay for some drugs or people trafficking or whatever under guise of a Turkish carpet business. You need to be able to put that information into your algorithms. And that's a very difficult job. Since you, I mean, you are a specialist and an expert on financial crime risk and compliance. If, I mean, there, we, have a, we have a variety of listeners. Uh, if there is anyone who wants to get in in this field uh, as a career choice, do you have any advice for anyone starting or uh, thinking about this field? What can they do? Yeah, go and be a plumber. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it is an incredibly high stress, incredibly high risk, physical risk. I mean, I have been to so many, and so many of my colleagues been at meetings with men with guns. Um, we've been followed down streets. Um, it, it is it's difficult for us it's difficult for our families who um, my then wife when i lived in the uk um said i'm fed up waiting for there to be a knock on the door at night there there are serious physical risks attached to it there's also serious mental risks attached to it it is an incredibly stressful job partly because nobody wants you to do it the salespeople don't want you to do it because if you're in, because if you're going to say I don't want to do that business because that person is high risk, they can report you to the to the managing director or, or, or the board or whatever and say he's stopping us making money, and that's what we're for. So you get pressure from above, you get pressure from below. Because people that are at every level within the organisation complain that they're having to do too much paperwork to do with this and they're not able to find the time to do their proper job. So you don't have any friends in your company. It is, I, I said in 1994, there was absolutely no way I would take the, 
the Money Laundering Reporting Office a job. And I'm delighted that I never have. I see people in that job now ten, the, the, at the very highest levels in the very biggest banks. They kind of swan around above all the problems. But the actual practitioners that are doing the job, it is a thankless task of incredibly high um, high risk. Just, just risk to mental health as well. It's, it's a very difficult job. And then in addition to that, you've got the regulators saying, you didn't do this properly. We're going to take away your license. And then you're not going to be able to work in this field anyway. It is a terrible, terrible job. Absolutely. On every possible level. Yeah. And what's more, in London, there are many businesses in London advertising for someone to do this as this sole um, person in the business to do it. Advertising salaries that are competitive, <laughs> competitive with secretaries. I was asked to look at a post in London. The salary was 60,000. It was half what it should have been for the job. And when you broke down the job that was advertised, it was actually three separate jobs. And they said, do you fancy doing this for 60,000 a year? I said, no. So should the politicians be setting higher rules here and saying you must have uh, appropriately rewarded, appropriately supported, appropriately defended officials doing these tasks? It's in all our interest. It's a bit like when we see a traffic policeman, part of our brain says, oh, troublemaker, I have to slow down now. But another part of our brain says, thank goodness for traffic policemen. It makes the whole roadways safer on the whole. So in the same way, society should say, yeah, these people are slightly troublesome, but frankly, we're all better off because they are doing their job. We should support them. We should give them thanks. We should. But in fact, what happens is the politicians and the regulators keep issuing more and more and more material, more and more and more complexity, more and more and more law, more and more and more regulation. I literally, I do not have the time to read the UK law and regulation and all the guidance notes that come out. And that's one country, and I work across the world. It is not possible to do it. And is that multiplication of legislation motivated to try and allow more fiddles, allow more ways of working around the system to make life easier, to get the regulators off their back? Or is it just an accumulation as lawyers do? Lawyers always like making more and more clauses just to cover every jot and tittle. Well, actually, it's not the lawyers in this case. It's the large firms of accountancy, consultancy things. They go in and they say, we've got this. We need to make it bigger. We need to make it more complicated. We need to plug all the loopholes. Um, and then once they've done that and persuaded the government to pay them for doing that they then go to the banks and everyone else and say let me provide you the services for how to deal with this so we actually need to throw away the vast majority of the law and regulation that we have and simplify it and make it go back to the original plan we, we're now at the point where people coming into the into this field are not dealing with risk their primary concern is compliance my attitude is the law was created to reduce the risk of financial crime. So we need the people in the jobs doing that, and compliance will follow. Compliance should not be the first thing that, that we look at. But sadly, 
as we're seeing more and more pressure, the pressure on the companies, the pressure on the individuals in post, um, penalties being applied, um, more and more regulators looking at things. I mean, we, we, we see um, the idea that now we should perhaps have, luckily the House of Lords threw it out, um, the idea that, comp that there should be um, an offence of failing to, um, to prevent money laundering. These are all layers upon layers upon layers that fall on the shoulders of a person who may not have, in many businesses, may not have this compliance function, risk and compliance function, as their entire job. When you look at smaller businesses, they may have several other hats to wear as well. So, no, don't go near it. Seriously, don't go near it. It's a terrible job. <laughs> I think my takeaway is the importance of trust, the importance of organizing trust, the importance of giving reasons, people, reasons to trust. We've heard from Nigel a desire not to use technology because the technology is sometimes buggy, it's awkward, it's not very convenient, it introduces complications, and many people are like that. Maybe they grew up, they're in their 50s or 60s, they weren't digital natives, they had jobs for a long time, they didn't require technology, and now they're being told by their governments or by their banks, you need to use this newfangled stuff. And it's confusing for them. So there's been three generations of technology. One is the technology had more features and higher performance. People said, yeah, I want to have that. Secondly, companies realized the importance of design. It wasn't the technology with the most features. It was the ones that made the users feel in control. And so it was companies that focused on design engineering that had more success. And I think we're seeing a new phase in the near future, trust engineering. And I don't mean that in a manipulative sense. I mean companies that truly do take the steps to make their customers, their clients feel comfortable with the right technology for the job. And that will give people the confidence that if they follow some basic mechanisms with these products, it will diminish the chance of all these bad things happening. So I see an era of trusted technology beckoning. Whether we get there or not depends very much on what we all do and what our leaders do. I think you're absolutely right. Indeed, trust is something that we are, as, as a, an industry, looking at. Um, because if we can't build trust into the system, then there's no point in having the system. Um, to be clear, I'm not against technology. I'm, in fact, a real fan of technology. I learned to program in the mid-1980s. I still program. I, um, I, I work with technology the entire time. Um, and I'm a fan of good tech. I'm not a fan of tech, which, which is oversold. That's where I'm primarily concerned about it. And buggy tech, then that should not be released to the public at large because that puts the public at large at risk. Thank you for listening to the Delta Dialogue. This episode is brought to you by the UN, a tech community focused on artificial intelligence in healthcare, machine learning, and related disciplines. I am Amir Mustafa, and see you next time.